0: Good evening ladies and gentlemen, I'll make a start if I may. My name is Kath Baldwin, I'm the Head of Recruitment and Admissions at LSE and I'm chairing this evening's event. Um, Welcome to the second year of the World Stage Student and Alumni Lecture, a series of talks where alums and students share the stage. I'm delighted to see so many of you here this evening and certainly numbers do seem to be increasing on last year which is very good news indeed. And I'm sure this is going to be a very interesting, enlightening and exciting evening. Before I go any further, could I just take a show of hands? How many people here are undergraduate students? How many postgraduates? Oh, the majority postgrads. Any academics? No. Okay, thank you. Um, let me introduce um, the speakers to you. Um, Christina Kerr, um, to my immediate left, has joined us from Barclays Capital. Christina is also an LSE alumna. Graduate, graduating in MSc in Industrial Relations and Personnel Management. She worked for Price Coopers for several years before moving to Barca, where she manages campus recruitment. She's going to be talking to us about what recruiters look for from LSE graduates, so I imagine that there'll be some furious note-taking during that particular presentation. Next, um, we have Slava Polonsky, who is one of our Stelios Scholars. He's from Ukraine and is currently working in his third year in the BSc in Management at LSE. He's previously worked at the World Economic Forum, PwC, and Amazon.com, and he founded the Strategy and Management Consulting Conference, LSE, and he's president of the LSE SU Consultancy Society. In 2011, he was honoured at the British Council International Student of the Year Awards, and was shortlisted for the Santander University's Entrepreneurship Awards. I'm surprised he has any time to do his studies. (laughs) Tonight he will talk about his passion for entrepreneurship and some of the projects he's developed alongside his studies. He also tells me he's enjoying his BSc in management so much he intends to stick around for a Masters at LSE next year as well, which is very good news. Um, And finally, I'm delighted to introduce our key speaker, Polina Bozek, Polina is the CEO of Inensu, a startup game company making social and innovative games for the connected generation. Prior to founding Inensu, she was the development director of the Atari London Studio, where she oversaw the creative direction and team management for the development of social games and applications. She spent six years at Sony as the executive producer of the SingStar franchise for PlayStation, Singstar has been instrumental in establishing games as popular entertainment and has achieved over $500 million in revenue. In 2004, Paulina was awarded the BAFTA Interactive New Talent Award. In 2005, Singstar was awarded the BAFTA Award for Originality. She graduated with an MSc in Media and Communications from LSE. And tonight she's going to talk to us about her time at LSE and what she has done since and offer tips on how to maximise your potential at LSE. So there are three speakers. I'll just cover the format of the evening. Christina will start the evening, um, followed by Slava, and they will talk for about 15 minutes each. Polina will then talk for around 20 minutes. Then we'll have about 20 minutes for questions and answers, and there'll be a reception outside in the foyer to which you are all, of course, invited. Finally, before our speakers speak, Um, instructions for later. You all have been given a small card, either with the name of a country or a city or a famous landmark. Please keep hold of the card um, because this will become crucial when you go into the reception and we will explain what you have to do with that at the end of the presentations. Now, without further ado, I'd like to welcome Christina to start the evening's talks.
1: Okay, well welcome everybody, um, basically I'm, it, I'm delighted to be back here actually, but I must say I'm green with envy matching the walls here, um, because when I was here this building didn't even exist, well it existed but we didn't have it, um, and I used to study in, in one of the other buildings, so every time I come here and see that you know, industrial relations and management, all the classes are held in this building, I'm sort of a bit green with envy. But anyway, forget about the envy and let's get on to the point. Let me just introduce what I'm, what I'm going to say and kind of why I'm saying it. Basically, I was a recruiter at PwC for 14 years um, and obviously had extensive relationships with the LSE and recruiting LSE grads. After leaving, actually, PwC, I was the Associate Director of the Careers Service for the Cambridge University Judge Business School. So I've kind of seen it from the other perspective, so a whole raft of employers coming in, telling me what they thought of our students, okay? And what was missing, what wasn't. And obviously now I've come back into the world of recruitment and I'm now at Barclays Capital and I head up the front office recruitment. So that's anything from investment banking to sort of sales trading, you know, etc., etc. So what I'm gonna to say today is I've been asked to talk about what employers actually seek in, in their recruits, okay? Now, I'm not just talking specifically from a Barcap perspective but I will actually just use, you know, everything that I've witnessed, you know, in my career today. Now, the first thing is, what do employers absolutely love about LSE? Well, quite a few things. Obviously, LSE globally ranks as one of the best universities, you know, phenomenal achievement to be here, and, uh, you know, the LSE brand is, is really strongly recognized um, amongst employers, um, global employers across the uh, across the the world. So that's one thing, yeah? LSE superb brand. So automatically that's fantastic, but it's auto, you know it's assumed that you're also going to have a fantastic brand. Yeah, because you're a member of this phenomenal um, LSE brand. Yeah, so there's high expectations of you when you receive an LSE kind of CV. Um, the next thing that employers absolutely love about LSE is in terms of the the passion for careers okay so um, I remember when I came here I was absolutely I, I felt like an alien um, because I was one of probably one of the only students who um, didn't actually have a clear idea what I wanted to do and I was very, very stressed because everyone around me kind of had this knowledge that they wanted to be a consultant and investment banker and I actually found it quite a stressful place for a while. Um, So what I'd say is is that commitment to career um, that you guys have, I know your career service is one of the most visited in the whole of the UK, okay? Um, um, so, So that is something employers also like because when they meet an LSE student, they also assume that, there's, that you guys have done a certain amount of research and you kind of have a pretty clear vision as, in terms of what you want or you're getting there or you're doing everything you can to get that kind of career focus, which is another thing employers absolutely love. I've been to careers fairs, I know when I went, um, I'm, not, no, I'm not naming universities here, but um, I went to a careers fair when I was working for PricewaterhouseCoopers and somebody came up and said, are you a water company? You know that kind of comment doesn't happen at LSE. It really, really doesn't. Okay. So um, that's that's something um, you know that that employers absolutely um, absolutely adore. Okay. The other thing that employers um, like, but sometimes I don't think you guys use enough. Um, now, if I say anything negative about LSE tonight, please don't be um, concerned, because obviously I'm a former. LSE alone, myself. So you know, it's just to to give you guys some some words of sort of advice in terms of what I've learned as well. But one of the things is obviously, it's a hugely international organisation, LSE. Yeah, every department you'll find yourselves with the privilege of studying with with students from a a, a wide variety of different countries and cultures. Now use that to your advantage. Yeah. Because that is something that is a must in in the financial world, to be able to relate to people from very different cultures, to be able to actually actively use those opportunities and really develop from those opportunities. Now, at LSE, I think a lot of the students that I sometimes interview it's all about sticking with people sometimes who, who are from fairly similar... You know, you spend time with people that you like, that you find easy. Stretch yourselves, you know. Try and be, try and start building relationships with, with people that you wouldn't normally go and associate yourselves with or mix with through your normal course of life. Really make advantage. Take advantage of this fantastic, um, you know, global sort of... Um, university, yeah? So what do, you, why, what do I, why do I say this? We'll, well, look at what other people, you know, if we're talking about the economy, don't just think about what's happening here in the UK. Talk to your colleagues from Colombia, from wherever it may be. You know, how, what's going on in your country? What will that do? It will just really broaden your horizons and, and your, you know, employers will expect you to have quite an international focus because of the nature of LSE. They expect you to liaise and engage with, with colleagues from all over the world, so really te- use that um, opportunity. It's very easy you know, to just, to just stick with students that are very similar to you and like your same hobbies and interests, but it's not really gaining the most of what LSE is all about. So that's one thing I would definitely encourage. Now the other thing um, employers like about LSE students is sometimes because of your commitments to your career and, and this sort of huge brand that you have on your shoulders with the LSE, um, they assume that you're going to be quite polished when you come to interviews. And all these visits to the careers service have definitely paid off. You know, when you come to interviews, you guys are normally dressed to the part and you've kind of clearly researched. Now. Those are some really positive things um, that I'm going to say. Yeah? Now I'm going to think I'm going to give you the other side. Yeah? Um, the things that employers sometimes have encountered when they're dealing with LSE students through a sort of careers perspective. Now, I talked about this sort of commitment to career and this sort of polish. Well, sometimes when I've spoken to um, LSE students and not in a recruitment mode, it's more in terms of a coaching. No, they sort of ask me, what kind of person do you want? You know, because I'm prepared to be that person. Yeah? <laughs> you know, what are you looking for? And I'm thinking, yeah. you know, everybody you know I'm looking for a variety. No, tell me, you know, what specifically are you looking for? And so i have had tremendous conversations around this and I kind of always say, We're looking for all sorts of people and it's sort of amazed face, well no tell me, you know, what exactly are you looking for? And LSE students have this terrible tendency of assuming what the employer wants to see and they're so eager to get into that employer or that career that they are prepared to adapt to be that person. But the mistake and the drawback with this is sometimes you get it wrong. Yeah? And what happens is sometimes LSE students can appear to be quite uniform Yeah, because everybody is trying to be what they think they should be Yeah, instead of being themselves. Yeah? so one of my um, main words of, of advice here tonight is don't do things don't get involved in activities that you just think are going to score a tremendous point on your CV if you don't enjoy them don't do it Yeah, because it's really not worth it don't panic. If you, I was never vice, pre, uh, vice president or president or anything of any societies. And hey, you know, I, I'm not the, the, the sort of, you know, the key alumni with the most achievements, but I hadn't done too badly, yeah? And I got where I wanted to be, yeah? So don't lose sleep about it, yeah? And then there's all this this sort of talk about what hobbies are good and what hobbies aren't. Well, I'll tell you what. Probably in my interview to Barclays Capital, at one stage I was asked about, you know, what, what, what was slightly... You, unusual about me and I thought oh my goodness okay you know and I I gave one example and that obviously wasn't unusual enough so um, (laughs) I gave another and I thought oh my goodness I'm going to have to confess to something that certainly (laughs) is not going to be accepted by an investment bank and actually my secret hobby is I love riding very powerful motorbikes yeah and obviously the (laughs) image of motorbikes and speed and kind of investment banks Kind of didn't, you know? But I thought, hey, I've got, no, I've got I, I'm trapped here. I'm going to talk about it. Well, the interview changed, you know. The, the uh, it so happened that my interview loved motorbikes, and you know, <laughs> <laughs> the interview, the interview went from, from good, you know, from 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 strength to strength. So, don't make assumptions of what I would like to see in your CV. All I want to see is people who are passionate about what they do. Now, whether it be from knitting to whatever, yeah. Um, as long as you're passionate about it, and as long as you've achieved things that you want to achieve out of that, that's fine. And don't worry too much about these organised societies. Yes, it's fantastic if you're the president of a society or whatever. Yeah. Um, but don't, it's equally fantastic if you're doing something in your local communities or with organisations that may maybe not even represented at the LSE. Okay? So what I'd say is stop stressing about... Being the person that you think everyone wants you to be. yeah, And just focus on being yourselves. Because that will really help in terms of the selection process. So, other things. Um, sometimes LSE students are so committed to their careers that they prepare essays for every single future question that they could potentially foresee would be asked. Yeah? And what happens is The first thing I'll ask a question that you haven't prepared for, and I actually don't want a a prepared question, I want to see the real you. Yeah, and so the amount of LSE students that sometimes when I ask a question, I know it's a bit unusual, and there's this shock horror oh my goodness, why didn't I prepare for that? You know, (laughs) And, and it's just what I would say to you is. Don't worry. One cannot prepare for everything in life. You know, sometimes when I'm working in this um, investment bank, I feel as I'm in a goalpost with with blindfold, and 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 balls are coming at me, and you know I don't wanna, I don't know what's going to hit me next. But that's actually I really quite enjoy that. Yeah. So if you're trying to get into the world of investment banking, things aren't planned. You know, the economy, what's happened recently, that wasn't pre- planned. Yeah. So you've got to you've got to <coughs> learn to deal with the unexpected. So. Focus on your strengths. Think about your CV very clearly. You know, think about what you've achieved. Think about the skills that you've achieved from that CV. Think about what motivates you. Think about what what you've achieved during that CV. Yeah, and think about the things that you could have done so much better as well. It's not because that's another thing that LSE students sometimes do. Um, it's around. I'm not confessing to anything negative because I'm an LSE student. Yeah. Well, actually, in the world of business, we like to see people who have built from mistakes, yeah. and it's the human side of people as well. So I would like to see sometimes that you've got involved in a project and things haven't gone particularly well, and, hey, this is what you've learned from it, and this is how you've given it forward. And that is just as powerful, and actually ten times more powerful than, I've never done anything wrong with a project No, they've all gone really well. You know it's not credible so that's that's another thing that I'd say you know if I was to say with LSC that I'd, I'd sort of focus on being the real you you know and my main main words in terms of careers um, I think there's two very two words for you to get your dream jobs and be distinctive yeah And I can't count, so no wonder I'm I'm in recruitment and I'm not an investment bank because it's a downside more than two words. It's two sentences, should I say? Okay, one of which is think like the person you want to be. Yeah. So if you want to be a consultant, start thinking consultant. Who would be your dream client? What would you do? You know how they how they in this sort of economy? Yeah. If you want to be an entrepreneur okay start thinking like one yeah um start thinking about opportunities in your in your sort of you know in what's around you right now the other side to this is in your cv start writing like the person you want to be and expressing yourself like the person you want to be okay so for instance if you if you go into the world of, of finance um a lot of a, a lot of investment banking is all about achievements I and mean, it's the bottom line what you have bought into something or what you've achieved so on a CV, there's no good talking just about descriptions, yeah? Well, I did this and it achieved that. That's what they want to see. So that's what I'm saying. Start aligning yourself um, with the language of, of the person you want to be. So that's, that's from a recruitment perspective, you know, some words of advice that I give you. Now, as an alum, um, what I'd say is LSE, I remember it to be quite a stressful environment. Um, and I know that many of you here are in your in your sort of masters, your your sort of postgraduate. Yeah, am I right again? I was I was here, and, and you know I came for one year, and I find it absolutely daunting, um, because the first the first term you kind of got everything flowing at you, you know, career wise and academic, and you're struggling to find your feet, and you don't necessarily. I can honestly say, in reflection, I didn't take advantage of as much of the sort of LSC lifestyle as I think I should in reflection, okay? Um, Because I was just so obsessed with just getting getting the basics of of what I should be doing. Well, I'd say to you guys, look around you. I think all of the alumni that you'll probably meet in these sessions have survived. And they've got through it, and they've done more or less okay. um, stop stressing so much and just start really using the opportunities that LSE provides you with. Now there's a host of social activities all the time where you can meet and network with all sorts of students that you might not meet through your academic kind of um, rigour, you know, in your, your lectures, so, so take advantage of things like that. Um, take advantages of, of all of the extracurricular activities that the LSE hosts and offers, yeah? Don't do it just because you think an employer wants to see it, yeah? Because that can be, you know. I remember actually when I when when I applied for my first jobs, so you know, straight out of university. At that point, I, I I wasn't so passionate about motorbikes to be quite honest. Um, my mother would have killed me if I'd have even gone near one. Um, but at that point, I had two hobbies: I had the windsurfing and the piano. Yeah. And at the time, I wanted to be a lawyer, and um, i'd watched too much um, city law or whatever it is. You guys are <coughs> too, young, too young to to, to sort of remember that that series but um, and I kind of thought i 'm not going to say anything about windsurfing because they 're going to imagine that i 'm some hippie on a beach and enjoying the sea and, and it just doesn 't fit with the whole wind, you know law and the, the whole sort of um, scene so i 'll say that I, you know piano is my stronger hobby. Well, actually, I wasn't lying, because I did play the piano and I reached grade five, whatever. But I haven't played for a while, yeah? So, obviously, I go into this interview, and the first, you know, question on extracurricular activities that I have is around my latest piece that I play on the piano. Nearly died. Yeah, absolutely nearly died. So, what I'm saying is be genuine, you know, just pursue hobbies that you really want to do. Now, the other thing I'd say... And this I'm going to finalise because I've probably reached my time, I'm I'm guessing. Um, But my last point, um, and then I'll shut up completely, is what I'd say to you is don't underestimate the extracurricular activities. I got a huge shock, yeah? In investment banking, for instance, there are all sorts of people selling in the sales and, and in the sales department, they're selling similar products to their clients. Why does somebody come to Barclays Capital as opposed to Goldman's or Deutsche? Because they're all selling at the end of those similar products. It's down to the interactions that they have with the client. Now, how do they build those interactions? It's not all about work and efficiency, it's about building relationships. They may go out, they might go to conferences with their clients, might invite them to things. Do you really want to be talking about sort of pro- very complex products 24 hours a day? No. Yeah. So these, so we look for people who have got a bit of a life beyond just studying. Okay. And so that's why I'd say, you know, um, don't underestimate the importance of all of the things that I've mentioned and encourage you to get involved in, because actually it plays quite a quite a powerful part in the recruitment process. Because there are a lot of guys with very strong academics, with faultless CDs, with good internships, whatever it may be. Um, But, so so this next level is kind of expected in in these kind of environments. But anyway, um, if you have any questions, obviously we're going to have a question and answer session, but I'll hand over now. (laughs) I (laughs) always
2: love
3: it. Well, I'll just say something about being the archetypal C student here. I'm good, well prepared for <laughs> all the questions. Um, but first of all, I want to of course say good evening to everybody, and uh, thank you for coming tonight. Um, my name is Lau, as you just um, heard. I'm a finally a management student um, here at the LSC. And uh, thank you so much, uh, Julie. Julie, just went out. <laughs> um, <laughs> organizing this, this this lecture. I mean this is a great platform that brings together current LSC students and um, alumni to speak about their common interests, to speak about their careers and uh, what their time at would actually unites all of us following the LSE's motto, um, you know, to understand the causes of things. So I'll talk about some of the things I did here at LSC over the last three years. I'll talk about growth, opportunity and fun. Uh, the aspect that we just heard about from our previous speaker and um, the most important thing for me here at LSE uh, is probably um, its diverse student body. I mean I see so many different nationalities here tonight in this room and I'm really delighted to see um, this diversity um, all around LSE. Um, so this is personally for me what was really important about this university. mean, You travel to the UK, uh, to, to LSE from all around the UK from over 140 countries. Um, from Americas to Africa, from Southeast Asia to the Middle East, um, from Latin America, and so on and so on. You bring with you the tapestry of um, the world's great traditions and the world's great cultures to the other sea. You carry within you this very beauty of different races, of different colors, different creeds and relations. But what really unites us today, and this is, I think, the reason why we all gathered tonight, in this room is that we all share this common belief that there is this aspiration that bounds us together as LSE students. Um, here at LSE you came here to broaden your horizon, you came here to maybe to start a business, to get an education, to speak freely and have a say in the way how you are governed and um, of course to achieve your goals in life. Um, and this is what truly unites us. The, with the LSE experience and the LSE education you'll be able to open any door around the world and this is what LSE provides for you. Now there's just one thing that is required from you, you just need to take the step and go through this door. So tonight I will speak about these three three steps that I took during my undergraduate studies at LSE. Um, Talk to you just about some of the projects I was involved in. So my first story is about growth. In my first year at LSE, I had this very vague idea to organize a conference on management consulting um, in the broadest and most relevant sense. Um, the forum, following LSE's tradition to engage with the public, to bring together um, intellectual leaders and business practitioners um, to talk about the global issues of our time. Um, global issues that students wanted to hear about and business practitioners wanted to talk about. Um, so what, what is driving, you know, businesses? Um, how can we succeed in a volatile world? Um, and after two weeks, after we had this initial idea, well, what, what we did, we went to Sir Howard Davis, back then director of the LSC, pitched the idea to him and got his support. After m- months later, a uh, m- month later, we got our first sponsor, the Boston Consulting Group, on board, and six months later, we kickstarted our first conference at the Freemasons Hall. Um, with notable speakers from all around the world. We selected also 200 um, delegates from about 1,000 applications from 65 um, universities around the world. And we thought it was a big success, and we just couldn't go, go further. But we were wrong. Um, because this year, um, the interest level for the second edition of the conference was just phenomenal. And this is what I wanted to say. You have to grow your projects. You have to grow them and uh, make them really the best projects there are out there. So what we did, we secured 10 more sponsors including Google, Deloitte, uh, Roland Berger, OCNC and others. We changed the venue to a more royal one. We went to the Queen Elizabeth Conference Centre in Westminster in the shadow of Big Bang. And we launched a global marketing campaign that attracted over 2300 applications uh, for this conference. And people were actually travelling uh, from France, China, Singapore, um, um, the US, uh, Spain and so on and so on to attend our event and to be part of what we have developed from scratch into one of the world's leading and largest conferences on management consulting, the LSC Strategy and Management Consulting Conference. So here's my first piece of advice to you. At LSE, all doors are open. And um, you can level up your project or your business to a global scale if you want it and if you're not afraid of it. So whenever you are, you're doing something that really matters to you, don't just let it be a project or a conference, a network be the best project, be the best project um, conference, network, and so on. You have to grow it and reach a global scale. My second story is about opportunity. So in my second year, I started to play the guitar. And I found it really, really cool and a and, and great, great instrument until I reached this point that I had to tune my guitar. And I thought it was quite annoying, I have to say. <laughs> um, the guitar seemed to detune quite easily. Every time the weather changed, you know, seemed to detune instantly. So I've, it was a pain. It was really a pain to, to tune it every time, because I didn't have a perfect pitch. Um, so I called a friend of mine from Oxford, who was doing engineering there, and um, asked him for a solution. So we sit down together, and uh, we came up with an idea. Provo pitch. This is what we eventually patented and um, started up. Basically, a unique technological invention that is uh, capable to automatically um, tune every type of guitar. So basically, that's a device like like that. <laughs> you should put on the guitar um, on the headstock, and it will. You just need to pick the strings, and then auto- automatically, it will process the sound, and then with its six light, tiny motors, adjust the settings of the guitar. Um, so we went to several competitions with this product idea, its prototype, and the whole business plan, and we won thousands, like a lot of lots of awards. Um, around um, Europe I think there is something on the stage Uh, but anyway um, so what I want to say with this I want to give you a second piece of advice Um, and that is take every challenge and every problem there is out there as an opportunity you have to dare to dream and push the boundaries of what seems possible so never stop at what seems impossible but just always go for the next level well my third story involves fun so this kind of goes back to what we've just heard, because um, I'm in my third year right now. And I have to say that everything I see um, on campus at the moment seems to be in kind of concert with either banking or finance. And um, I've no- if you've noticed, the most popular word on campus is, uh, well, after internship, it's probably m and sales and trading, and so on and so on. Everybody dreams about an internship with uh, Barclays or the Goldman Sachs. You know, um, But um, this is not exactly what a university experience should be. Um, you know, f- fun, partying, being crazy is a necessary part of a student life. Um, so this, was, this will give you actually the energy for all the other projects. Um, so over the summer I just had this random idea to uh, create a card game, investment bankers versus consultants. Um, to combine kind of the fun part of a uh, game with uh, the most serious, kind of careers focus at LSE and sometimes career obsession that you observe in some LSE students. Um, so um, we called it Business Battle and um, it's actually the first strategic uh, card game where you can um, basically play at the edge of corporate reality. Um, we have designed about 100 different cards, we printed them in China, we designed a whole um, game with all the rules around it and so on. Um, It's actually very similar to Pokemon or Magic cards, if you ever played that, so instead of monsters you have professionals, you have interns, um, hedge funds managers, CEOs uh, and so on, battling each other on the market for market profits, and then instead of strategies you have, uh, instead of spells you have strategies, like Portus Five Forces or uh, you know, credit default swaps, and um, then you have like big very mighty cards like financial crisis would bam, instantly kill all the bankers <laughs> of the olden um, So you see it's also, it's, it's also about banking and, and finance and so on but it's also about fun and that's what I want to convey this little story. So don't let the career ambition in you replace the fun. Don't let the banker kill the baby within you. Yeah? <laughs> um, follow your inner voice, your game instinct. Um, this will lead you to the place where you really want to be. Um, so in conclusion, let's um, say the LLC is a great institution. It's uh, an empowering institution um, where young men and women can take a chance on a dream. They can take an idea that starts at the lecture theatre or um, on a beer mat, for example, and turn it into a new business or a new industry or a whole job for your life. It um, depends what you want, but it always will have the power to change the world around you and how you interact with this world. There's really no limit here uh, what you can do or what you can achieve um, in terms of growth, opportunity and fun. So in this respect here basically my three key takeaways from this this relatively short lecture. So grow, grow the things you care about. Become really good, become the best in your discipline. Seize all the opportunities out there. Push the boundaries of what seems possible. And don't be afraid to be crazy. Follow your game instinct and create this momentum that will unleash this epic win in understanding and shaping the causes of things. So this is, in my opinion, the enormous potential that every one of you, every single one of you in this room and every other LSE student can unlock during your studies at LSE. Thank you.
2: I just like to start by saying I don't play the piano or the guitar, so I'm the odd one out um, of the three LSE grads. But um, So as you heard uh, a little bit earlier, I did something a little bit unusual with my LSE degree. Uh, I decided to go into video games. It's not really a common path, I don't think, for LSE grads. Um, I graduated from the LSE with a Media and Communications degree in 2002. Uh, and in 2003, in January, I joined Sony Computer Entertainment, uh, the PlayStation division. And so in the last eight years, I've been working in games, and uh, I started, I've been an associate producer, a producer, executive producer, studio director, uh, and most recently CEO. However, when you're in a startup, you automatically are the CEO. So <laughs> this sounds a little bit more serious, um, you know, perhaps than it is. So, I do quite a lot of industry talks, I do uh, a lot of talking about games and social media and technology. Uh, I don't often talk just about myself, so, uh, but I'm going to try to share some of my experiences and I hope that you pick up something universal from them. So uh, what I'm going to be talking about, broadly speaking, during the next 20 minutes or so is what I learned at the LSE, what I have learned since the LSE, and what I wish I learned at the LSE. Uh, so, first of all, why did I come here? Uh, well, I'm originally from Poland, I grew up in Canada, and uh, when I was looking at applying uh, for different master's programs, I do my master's here, I actually applied to two schools. So I applied to MIT, there's a comparative media studies program at the MIT, so it's kind of like the sister program to the Media Lab, and uh, Henry Jenkins ran that and he's kind of a hero of mine. And I also applied to the Global Media and Communications program here at uh, the LSE. So I went over to the MIT and I had an interview, um, a group interview, which is kind of daunting, uh, to get in. Ultimately, I did not get in. Um, I sometimes say I wasn't quite nerdy enough for um, MIT, but I'm sure there was a little bit more to it. But anyways, um, LSE was not my second choice. I was really interested in this brand new program called Global Media and Communications. Uh, I think it was the first year it was running and it was a two-year program. One year was taught here in London uh, and the second year was taught in Los Angeles. Um, So, and I think now it's actually taught with Beijing, I believe, uh, or or is it Beijing? Yeah, so that sounds uh, even more interesting. (coughs) And um, so not only was this London and LA kind of suitably jet set um, for me, but uh, at the time, if you wanted to study media, this is the year 2000, it seemed that you could only really take two routes. You could either go into this film theory, very theoretical course, or into media production, which is like you know, learning how to make media. And I wasn't necessarily exactly interested in um, any one of those. So LSC really offered something that was uh, rooted in social science, research, uh, and theory, but very, very focused on what's happening in the world today. It's very engaged, and that was really what I was looking for. So, um, my professors here, when I was here, um, was my, the uh, late and great Roger Silverstone. He was running the media and communications department while I was here. Uh, Terry Rantanen ran a Global Media and still does, and Sonia Livingstone. And one of the things that really made a big impression on me when I was studying here was the fact that my professors uh, and the people you know, that taught me every day were hugely prolific and active authors on a world stage, and they were constantly sort of in the media, in the news, commenting. Uh, there was lots of reports uh, being written on you know, a very, very frequent basis by, by the, the professors that I had on a daily basis, and that made a really big impression on me. So I read Roger Silverstone's <laughs> books while I was here. I continued to read them while I left. I have not made it through Anthony Giddens' 32 books. Uh, he was the um, director of the LSE while I was here, and Sonia Livingstone published uh, and continues to publish a huge report on EU Kids Online, and that's literally on my reading list right now. So that made a really big impression on me. So yes, we end up with the press quite a lot. Uh, very, ex- you know, Pretty exciting year for the LSE in terms of the media. Um, not really commenting at all on those issues and why you know, LSE was in the media but I was looking for a very engaged place, a place that was very engaged with contemporary issues, and that's what I found here at the LSE. And I think that doesn't, um, you know, obviously it's not exclusive to the media department, it's in all, you know, various different departments around the school. So, um, I, when I was here I studied, uh, like I said, media and communications, and my thesis actually was on games, video games, which was not so common, I'm pretty sure I was the only student doing a video games thesis um, that year, uh, and especially when video games kind of looked like this, and uh, they were considered very much toys for boys, uh, not re- you know, something that boys did kind of in the dark, in their bedrooms. <laughs> um, so not really necessarily a thesis at LSE. However, um, it was very, very, I felt it was very accepted here. It was very validated. Uh, this was a new growing phenomenon in popular culture and uh, it found, it totally found a place here. So, what have I learned since the LSE? Well, I was armed with my LSE degree and uh, it was time to um, start a job, or to find a job rather. And I, so I applied to, first I thought I wanted to do television. Um, I always said that if I wasn't doing games, I'd be doing a different kind of media or entertainment. I wasn't just narrowly focused on games. So I thought, oh, the grass is greener. TV is very glamorous, and I applied to the BBC uh, New Platforms Division, which I think at the time was directly across the street in BBC House. And I also applied to Endemol. Endemol is a production company, and they were working on uh, new formats like Big Brother and Pop Idol, which were actually new um, back then. And um, but my limited exposure to sort of the TV industry—I didn't have that much—but I tried to get in the industry was that I have to start by making a lot of tea and running around and being a runner and I actually found it really hard to sort of break in and then I thought well I don't actually watch television that much and I'm not so excited about it so I decided to go back into games. Now I'm uh, not necessarily a big gamer. I didn't really grow up um, playing games, well I, I did actually, I saved the princess quite a lot. (laughs) <laughs> um, but the game console was my brother's, it was in the house, there was always a Nintendo around and I'd pick it up very casually and kind of you know, check it out in a very um, casual way. But I would rather socialize, read, go shopping, hang out with my girlfriends. So the reason that I've been interested in games uh, specifically is because it's this combination of entertainment and technology. Um, and I really like that. I think technology drives games to constantly reinvent themselves. You know, when you think about TV, there's quite a set definition of what is a TV program, but there's no set definition of what is a game, and it is often technology that, well it is technology, it really drives it forward um, to reinvent itself. So this section of what I learned, a lot of it is about games, <laughs> as uh, uh, unsurprisingly, because that's what I've been doing. Um, so when I joined, um, I applied to Sony, and I actually went direct. Um, I found it quite difficult to get a job, to break into the industry. So I, I was looking around for about three or four months, and the thing I found difficult is um, the kind of recruitment agencies, um, not the recruit, you know, recruitments at uh, specific companies, but there's this kind of layer of recruiters you know, between you and the company, and I found it difficult to break through. You know, I was a piece of paper, they didn't know me, um, and so that didn't really work out for me. So what I did decide to do is I went direct. And I found Sony. I liked what they were doing um, in London here. And I just applied directly to the HR and expressed myself why I want to be there. I was passionate uh, and all the rest of it. And that worked for me. So I got a, jo- I got a call and an interview very, very fast. Um, so whenever I'm asked to sort of share any tips on you know, getting into the industry and, and landing your first job, for me, it was, it's really very much go direct. Uh, go direct and make your impact uh, as directly as you can. So I joined Sony. Uh, They were very excited to have an LSE grad uh, working there. They were even excited about my games thesis, uh, which was nice. And I was still a little bit of a sort of outsider in the industry um, because it was quite a male-dominated industry on the development side. It's uh, you know very heavily male-dominated, and and much fewer women. Much more women on the um, marketing side. But I think that that was actually a really good thing, and sort of I think was my advantage. Um, if I'm honest, uh, because when I joined Sony, uh, my remit in 2003 was really to try to open up the gaming um, audience. Games had been quite a narrow uh, industry. I mean, it was a really passionate niche industry, but uh, we used to define games as Xbox, Microsoft and Nintendo. And now, you know, the industry includes social networks, the web, iPad, iPhones, Androids. Um, It's a much, much broader industry. But it wasn't in 2003. So my remit was really to attract new audiences and to make games uh, feel as familiar as, say, watching X Factor on a Saturday night or going to the cinema. So in a sense, I was actually making games for people like me, casual, social, um, you know, who's looking for entertainment. So I was trying to, this is kind of what games you know, traditionally look like. Shooters and, and uh, sports games and war games and things like that and I and my specific um, area was to try to move into much more of this area, which uh, which was quite a transition. So suddenly we had people like famous actresses like Nicole Kidman playing games that would have never happened um, six seven years ago actually. The family was around a game console on New Year's Eve. Uh, even grandma and grandpa, you know, can pick up one of these controllers and play. And you had uh, pop stars and girl bands advertising games. So that was quite, um, quite a big transition that the industry went through around 2005. So yes, so the, the game, the product that I mo- I've been mostly involved with is a singing game called SingStar. It's a competitive karaoke game, believe it or not. Um, and it's very social, and it turns singing into a game and a social game. Um, and we made some kind of key decisions around the design and development that really did tap into uh, making this kind of mainstream fun for everyone. And I'm very happy to say it worked. Um, so it was. <laughs> quite a successful game and nobody really was expecting that because it was quite, um, you know, from the left <coughs> side, not really what we traditionally think of as the games industry. But it did very well. Um, we released, first of all, we started, I uh, started myself and two programmers and together we built the game and built the team, obviously, because three people is quite small for a console game. And we built up the team to 60 people over six years and produced this franchise, but it took time. It took six years to reach, um, you know, these kinds of numbers. and. Uh, it became the most successful new game concept launched on PlayStation 2 in Europe and the sixth best-selling franchise of all time on PlayStation 2 in Europe. And uh, as, I, as was mentioned earlier, I was very honored and um, excited to receive a BAFTA for this. As well, the game received a BAFTA for originality. And some of the stories i like to tell from that um, time, I challenged Beyonce to a singing contest uh, at an event. She won. I'm um, probably not <laughs> surprised about that. Um, I got to sing in front of Simon Cowell, Andrew Lloyd Webber, and many, many more people. But I should add that I'm a terrible singer, so this is um, a very welcome presentation where I don't have to sing for once. Uh, so it was a fantastic experience, um, great experience, h- lots of hard work. But um, at the end of 2008, I decided it was time to move on after six years there and I decided to join um, a company called Atari. So Atari is actually the the first video game company in 1970s. They released the iconic Pong um, uh, game and the iconic Atari 2600, if some of you guys um, have heard of those or remember them. But the funny thing is, is a lot of people think Atari is a t-shirt company. Um, (laughs) Because they're not so, you know, like people are 20 years old, like my little sister thinks Atari is a t-shirt company because they see the symbol but they don't realize that it actually belongs to you know, a big company. So Atari for me was um, kind of like a school of hard knocks. It didn't really work out. I was there for a year and a bit. For various reasons it didn't work out. A few of us went from Sony um, and went there and then we all kind of left and went our separate ways. But it was still, uh, I think, a really good experience because it taught me what it's like to be at a company that does not have sort of endless pockets like Sony. Um, this is a company where the bottom line was very important and there wasn't, yeah, there just wasn't a huge amount of money um, flowing, sloshing around on the company. And I think that was a really, you know, a good and important lesson to learn as well as, as success. So at the uh, end, middle of 2010, so last year, I decided that it was time to start my own company. Uh, and I did that for a couple of reasons. And one of them is the kind of the rate of change in the media industry and um, consumer tech is really tremendous right now. There's these new platforms emerging, obviously these are not new, but the industry is still really, really very much in the transition and feeling the effects of platforms like Facebook and iPhone and, and Android and mobile. So where um, you know our audience and games used to spend their time games they're now spending their time on Facebook and so that does have an impact on our industries and if you um, so if you take a look at that in just in comparison these bars here are the uh, worldwide console installed base of different uh, types of consoles the Nintendo Wii the PlayStation 3 the Xbox and then you have um, Facebook there you know it is absolutely obviously you know colossal next to these other platforms so for me as somebody very focused on mass market and, and um, mainstream audiences, you could sort of see audiences moving across to, the, to these different platforms and the web was re- is really going through this renaissance as a consumer tech platform, you can do really interesting entertainment things on the web. So I decided that it was, um, it was, time, it was time to start. There's a few other sort of changes that are going on in, my, in the media and, and consumer tech that I just wanted to mention that are a big influence. One is this transition from packaged goods, retail to <coughs> digital. Uh, you know the moving from retail to a downloading or streaming uh, kind of experience. Um, the cha- the emergence of software as a service. so rather than buying software in a box, uh, a packaged kind of good, software is an ongoing service that you subscribe to or you microtransact and pay pay for parts of. <laughs> Similarly, we have um, new business models. Uh, free is literally the kind of most popular business model um, in in consumer tech now and it's all about converting Users to paying users and subscribing rather than a one-time purchase of 40 pounds. It's becoming What is the customer lifetime value and can I build a kind of ongoing service that um, that drives that? So it's all really interesting. The other thing that's happening is um, data data and analytics are infl- you know, flowing through so many different industries and ours. We're starting to use data for design and for decision making. A lot of the games that are successful now, especially online, are uh, m- tracking everything, everything, all the interactions, where people drop off, um, they're doing A and B testing, uh, seeing what, where the preferences are, what you know, demographics plus user behavior is like, and constantly tweaking and refining experiences to find, you know, to, to, to improve them. And finally, the other thing that's like a really big disruptor in our industry is the fast, fast um, emergence of mobile internet. So this is a fairly complicated slide here, um, but the main thing to look at is uh, this, this tracks sort of how fast different um, technologies gained adoption with users, and the green line is the mobile internet. So mobile internet is really very much um, just accelerating in reach faster uh, than desktop internet did. And the um, you know analysts will say that people accessing well, uh, there'll be more people accessing the internet on their mobiles by 2015 than there are on their desktops. Um, so this is a pretty phenomenal statistic. Uh, this comes from a woman called Mary Meeker. If you want to look that up, she's a Silicon Valley um, analyst, has been doing these amazing reports for a long time. And uh, so she actually says that we're going through the fifth big wave of technology, the kind of mobile internet. Um, Technology. So some would call this uh, a moment of disruptive innovation. There's a very famous uh, management theorist called Clay Christensen from Harvard, and uh, and he coins this uh, disruptive innovation where there's new things emerging in the market that are taking over the kind of established incumbents, and they're providing a service that is not necessarily more sophisticated, but is better in some other way, whether that's convenience or cheaper or access or it's ubiquitous and that kind of thing. So um, these are the kinds of things that inspired me to start a new company. And uh, also, I think the Atari experience sometimes it's good to have bad experiences because you know, you're not leaving something behind. you're just pressing forward. And so we set up last year, and we're a startup. Um, we're still very much in the kind of world of entertainment meets games. Uh, that's, that's our speciality. And we've just launched two platforms, Uh, one of them is actually a fashion, social fashion platform. Um, We're still very much on the periphery of what a game is, still applying game mechanics to pop culture. Uh, This particular project is in collaboration with Channel 4 and it is designed to raise awareness around sustainability in fashion and uh, kind of uh, educate uh, teenagers about where their clothes are coming from in fast fashion. So we took this uh, brief and created an online, uh, online clothes sharing platform. So the idea is that you can build an online closet of your clothes, real real photos, and tag them up. And instead of buying, you might say, hey, that's really nice, can I borrow it? So the tagline is, don't shop, swap. And the underlying message is, recycle, reuse, give clothes a long life, um, and that kind of thing. So yes, yeah, so we've built this across mobiles and the web. And the other platform we have just launched, just to give you a little bit of an idea of what we do, um, is called Superfan. And Superfan is uh, on Facebook, will be on mobile very soon, and this gamifies what it means to be a music fan. So, are you the number one fan of Drake, Rihanna, Lady Gaga, um, or Neil Diamond? (laughs) Um, So, as you can see, you never know where games can take you, um, and we're still very much interested in applying game mechanics to popular culture and different spaces. So, a couple of uh, quick points on what I wish I learned at the LSE, and I think there's actually some crossover um, and echoes from what we heard before. So first of all is, uh, I wish I'd made more friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, this was mentioned already, and not because my Facebook is lonely, but um, <laughs> really just because, as was mentioned in the first half, sort of underestimated the influence and the value of, your, of the network here at LSE. I wasn't really interested in networking when I was here. I uh, you know, had friends and I did my studies. Uh, but there are so many times that now when I want to reach out to somebody, you know, I check them out on LinkedIn, they went to the LSE. It's really common. And I also find that these days I'm going outside of my immediate work network and, uh, and connecting with people outside my work network whether that's for mentoring, advice, contacts. And so that value of that extended network is just proving really, really important to me. So that is one thing that uh, I know if I looked back, I thought, oh, you know, as was said, take advantage of that. I did a master's and that one year can go by incredibly quickly. Um, And maybe that's also an entrepreneurial thing perhaps, like just trying to, you know, find connections or maybe it's for everyone, um, spotting, you know, connections and colleagues and mentors and, and things like that. The uh, next thing that I would wished, not so much that I'd learned, but an attitude that I wish I'd been uh, more exposed to was uh, to fail, <laughs> to fail fast. Um, this, this is really about speed and failure. So in my world, uh, consumer tech, it's moving very, very fast. And the main mantra that goes around these days is that it's better to fail fast, fail again and fail better. Um, This is actually a quote from Samuel Beckett, uh, which I never would have thought, but it is. And it's quite an American sentiment, this kind of fail fast and it's okay to fail kind of thing. But the idea is really that, um, well, A, don't be afraid of failure, but B, that you learn by doing. Uh, you know, there's only so much studying and, and, and um, reading that you can do. But the next thing is that you don't make expensive mistakes. Expensive mistakes that take a long time, you know, if you're sort of masterminding something behind the scenes before you release it out to whoever your audience is, um, you can make an expensive mistake. And, and so when you fail fast, you make speed your competitive advantage. You, you work fast and, and it's about speed and it's about iteration and iterating to perfection. And that's kind of um, how how, I d- how we do things, and it's something that I'm learning now. And the final one is just a point, uh, just to throw out there, and that is that the curious will win. Um, I've heard this mentioned before, and we have access to an immense amount of information these days, uh, and it just keeps coming. It keeps coming. It's like a tsunami, and uh, so I think it's not about learning in the you know the space of time that we have here. It's about taking that. Um, Taking that with you and, and continuously learning and always learning, um, because I think the curious will win. I've heard that before, and it's a sentiment that has stuck with me. And I think LSC really, for me, um, feels that way. I mean, the for example, just a very common example, the public events series is obviously amazing, incredible, uh, and you know, I've seen some world world leaders um, and the fact that you can just come back here and be connected and I remain connected um, eight years later. So um, that's my last point and uh, thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much indeed to our speakers. We have about 15 minutes um, for questions. Let me just turn the lights up slightly. So uh, we're just going to take questions from the floor. If anyone has a question, for any of our speakers, if you just want to raise your hands, I'll point at you, and then you can ask your question. Mm, no questions at all. Yes, one here. Well, I have a question from uh, the name of, uh, Yes. Alina? Oh, yes, sorry. Um, it's about uh,
3: how do you manage, well, in the tech industry, how do you manage people? Uh, who, are, uh, who have a different background? I'd say uh, uh, p- people who program the, the, the games, and uh, I don't think you had any experience in programming, or uh, you did a, a,
1: a masters in really. sociology. Yeah, <laughs> I'm doing finance, and I love tech, and I think I don't know how, how you, you can cope with, with this. Uh, sure. As as a manager, already.
2: yeah, it's a very good question. Um, I'd say there's two, two parts to that. I mean, we, I mean, I'm a very big believer in experts over managers. So uh, in teams, when I was at Sony, where the teams were much larger, that uh, you'd, you'd want to kind of direct a tech director who was an expert, who totally understood the, the craft and still probably developed. That's my personal um, preference, is to have somebody who is a, a technical person kind of being the director of that mini group. But beyond, above that, uh, the way we develop, is, is a, it's a um, development sort of style called Agile, and Agile is all about uh, short-term development cycles, and you start every single cycle, like your sprint, maybe two weeks long, and at the beginning you talk about what user features you're going to develop, so it's really user-focused, and the team... Um, Comes together and it's a cross-functional team between designers and developers, and the goal is really end-user features. So it's not building some huge code amount of code that I can't understand. The value is not in that. The value is in the user features that we are able to put together. So those those would be the two things. Yeah.
3: As a manager, you have something to say about where uh, is has something been. Coded the right way, or has something designed the right way? Uh, uh, for example, for again, like Sing Star, you have, you have characters, you have, you have uh, marketing. Uh, you have something to say about this, or uh, are you are only you, are you focused on, on your part, the features?
2: Uh, well, my role was the executive producer, so I would have a, a counterpart who was a marketing director, and that's how it used to work. So I would be responsible for all of the kind of uh, features and delivering that, and the team uh, and the overall concept and target audience, and then working with the marketing director who would actually design the campaign to sell and promote the game.
1: I have a question for all three of you, really. I've been to all of these world stage events, I think they're fascinating. Um, but at the last one, I was, well, one of the ones, the previous set. The speaker urged all the students in the room to think of themselves as a brand, and to uh, everything that they did to be directed to developing themselves as a brand. And I wondered what you thought of that. Yeah, um, I think it's quite good actually, um, because I think, um, especially when you're when you're when you're trying to get a job, you know, you need to think of yourself as what have I got. What is my distinctive kind of unique selling point that other people haven't got? So it is about thinking about yourself as a brand. So what have you got that will appeal to that employer? I think why it's particularly um, good, actually, is, is throughout my time as a recruiter, a lot of times I go to a careers fair or I go to an event, and students will come up and they say, I've got a master's and I'm doing this and this is what I'm good at and this is, where do I fit in? And um, the conversation is all about them. It's all about, you know, what they've done. And it's the conversation is not really employer-focused. You know, I've researched on you. This is what you're doing. And this is where I think I might fit in. What do you think? You know? Um, so I think it's actually that, that concept of, of thinking of yourself as a brand and how you're going to appeal to an employer, yeah, is actually not a bad thing. And what is distinctive about your brand? And also being very cautious about... I mean, I remember... Um, when I was, when I was um, associate director of the group service at, at the judge, I had some students who they'd come in, you know, I'd, I'd be getting McKinsey in or wh- whatever, you know, made a bit of an effort to actually get them to come along to Cambridge with all the snow, you know. And you'd, you'd have these employers there, and you'd have students coming in late, and not just sitting down quietly, but actually walking straight across the presenter. And it's those kind of things, that is all part of your brand, so your Facebook page, your LinkedIn profile, but it's also how you behave in front, you know, the, the punctuality piece, all sorts of things. So I actually think there is an, I agree with that to a certain extent, yeah. yeah. Do other speakers have anything? Well,
3: I, I think we have to start thinking about how the, um, how a certain brand develops. Um, you always, uh, you have, you segment the market, you know, then you target a certain part of the market, then you position yourself. Um, which is good in the marketing context. But uh, when we're talking about human beings, uh, maybe the brand comparison is not directly the best one, because brands come and go, and each brand has a certain brand equity, right? Uh, But you can't say this about uh, students. So the appropriate word would be maybe image. Um, The image here that you convey to the employer as a student, uh, being serious, being determined, um, have a variety of interests, for example. but brand, for me, in my perception, is something very targeted, something that, is, that exists to um, facilitate the consumption of a of good, for example. Whereas a student is there for, 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 for being there, right? He's a human being. Um, there is no single purpose of just being employed. Because otherwise, we run the risk to um, narrow our personalities to such an extent that we actually exist outside the corporate world. Okay, any more questions? Yes, gentleman in the back. Yes, yeah, I, I have a question for the lady on the right side. And, uh, think you are, um, uh, think you are an entrepreneur of
0: a consumer tech company and uh, the biggest threat to consumer tech companies I think is model and try to do the same thing and uh, I think uh, I, I thought I think that you have thought about this and uh, what's your
3: opinion to this
2: yeah <laughs> it is really hard to find something <coughs> defensible in uh, now I mean you would look for patents and that kind of thing but not you know you don't always have a patent that you could protect your idea with so I think right now that the main gain, uh, the main thing is yeah, you can be copied. Somebody can come out and copy you all the time uh, release a similar service is sometimes it's not just the innovation of the idea but it's the distribution uh, because that's the other like main challenge right now is actually uh, being noticed you know there's this just millions and millions of things out there and, and we're kind of passing through them online uh, and things are forgotten and you touch something for one day and you never come back to it so I think there's advantages to distribution, not just the idea itself, but how you get it out there and what your strategy is for, um, for getting it out there.
0: Gentleman in the back.
3: The
2: question is primarily for Polina, but if anyone else can answer, it, I'd be
3: grateful. Cool. Um, as an executive director of uh, what is fundamentally a tech project, what do you look for in your programmers? Do you look for them to understand the idea and the user experience behind the, the project? Or are you primarily looking for just, are they able to write these in code?
2: Um, well, I think we'd, be, we'd definitely be looking for very solid code uh, skills, which I would not assess, because I don't know how to, you know, don't know how to do that. But um, yeah, really solid on that side. But, and not necessarily just knowing you know, one language deeply, but being able to learn other languages so um, being able to pick up new things, fast learner and curious, wanting to learn. Uh, but then also, yeah, the user experience is important. Um, somebody who is happy to focus on um, the user ultimately and isn't just going to kind of you know, build this amazing thing that nobody will ever see. Um, so that would be it. Okay. Um, one more question, yes, Hi, um.
0: So Christina, uh, you mentioned that. That a useful
1: thing to use in terms of an international institution, I don't know. Um, you know, obviously, it very much depends on the organisation you're applying for. But, but, but basically, what I what I'd say is 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 being able. I mean, LSE, You know, when I was at the LSE, um, you know, the challenge challenges is you, you know you're working you're your on projects with people from all over the globe with very different approaches to studying with very different sometimes language you know difficulties sometimes you know. And, and, but, but there's a whole richness of, of people have ideas because they come from these this sort of variety of experiences in life. The richness of what you're hearing around you is really good and I think it doesn't really matter whether you're bringing that to a local company or a global company because at the end of the day, if you're working for a local company, I bet you, yeah, um, that, that they're gonna want you to deal with a variety of people from all sorts of different backgrounds. And actually, we're, we're, although you're local, you're probably still quite a global you know, client base around. Do you know what I mean? So it doesn't mean that just because you're working in an organization that is completely global, that you're not gonna use those, those same skills. Because it's about dealing with people from different perspectives, yeah? Um, learning th- about things from a different sort of mindset sometimes and actually using that as an asset as opposed to complaining about it, yeah? Because, I mean, I remember as, as, you know, I don't get involved so much with direct interviewing anymore, but I remember it became very monotonous to hear um, about just one thing I'd say, avoid, um, because I've heard it 10 million times and it's not impressed me once, and that is when students always talk about, and and it is a bit of an LSE trait, when you're asked (coughs) about a challenging team, it's always about, well, it was challenging because there were so many different nationalities and actually and it's all very negative yeah and, and I hate that I really hate it because I expect an LSE person to actually think about a, a multicultural team and with, with a whole you know host of different nationalities and that as an asset and if I'm not hearing that in a it, you know if the team scenario is an example of where somebody you know for whatever reason it's just very negative so I'd say LSE is all about connecting with people different people. Yeah, and it's about embracing that. And whether you're working globally or you're exposed to global clients or actually you're working in a local organisation, that is going to be key. It's understanding your clients, you know, thinking in their shoes and actually embracing them. Thank
3: you. One more question at the back and then we'll wrap it up. Because you're a poor speaker. When applying for a job, like how important is this to focus on relevant work experience? Sometimes I sometimes I imagine that it is you know it's a drawback. Perhaps they are they get confused. But for me, it was very coherent. It was stage one, mm-hmm. two, three. Mm-hmm.
1: Is that to me? Yes. Please. Oh, okay. Um, basically, in terms of in terms of work experience, I I actually think a lot of organisations um, just want you to point out what is relevant about your experience to the to this particular role. Yeah. So a lot of it might be, you know, for instance, if you're going into consulting, you know, it might be that you haven't got consulting experience, but actually you've had clients in a particular industry, and you know that as a consultant they deal with those those clients from that industry. So that's your hook, yeah. Um, if you want to go into major banking, you know, use that. that just think about hooks. Okay, why was that work experience? What aspects of it could I potentially link to the job I'm applying for? Now it might be the client. It might be the type of work. yeah. So for instance, if you're going to marketing, you know, whether you're marketing for Tesco or marketing for, if you're still using some, I mean there are differences, um, but there are some similar skill sets. yeah. So really, it's about this thinking about, and this is where the thinking about your brand, what, what, how are you going to add value to that, cl- to that organization? And these work experiences, these are the skills and these are the things that you've learned that actually you believe will help you to add value. As long as you are connecting your work experiences to the to the to the employers that you're applying for, I think it's really good. What I would say is in an interview on a CV, anything like that, avoid describing the organisation in I don't really care. Yeah. If you're applying for an organisation that's very different to where you've worked before, I don't really want to, you know, a, a whole paragraph defining how wonderful that organisation is. Yeah? I'm more focused on hearing what you did and what skills you, you have that's relevant and what you've achieved. Whereas I can say, okay, they worked in a different field, but actually the cl- there's a link with the clients or the, the, the country that you might have worked in. Yeah? So you just establish links, and it's up to you to, to think about that. You know, When I worked with students at the judge, it was sometimes, you know, they'd say, well, you know, I remember somebody who, who went into investment banking, actually, and they came from a sort of media background, but they had a whole host of experience in, in China. And actually, the bank they went to was really using that that particular niche knowledge of, of sort of Chinese affairs as as their selling point. Do you know what I mean? So it's up to you to establish those things. <coughs> no. Yeah. Okay. There's one, just here. Yeah. Yeah. Um. This is to Christina. Okay. Finally, we are going to project, and it will be insane. up all of us got an extinction or something like that. How important is your grade to Siri when you? Different organisations, you know, the organisations I've worked with view it in very different ways, yeah. Um, But generally, um, the bad news is, um, there's a lot of competition out there, yeah. And um, the harsher the environment, the more competitive it becomes. So that's when grades will become even more and more important, to be honest, yeah. Um, So if you know, I would really buckle down and make sure you do get your grades, you know. Um, but if I'm honest, do you have to get a distinction? Personally, you know, I'd, I'd, I'm not discouraging anyone by Because <laughs> um, I don't want to get in trouble here. Um, but if somebody's got a distinction and they haven't done absolutely anything, you know, from an extracurricular or anything, that might be a problem. Whereas if somebody's got sort of, I think where we where we venture into real difficulties is is with the sort of lower end of the spectrum, yeah. Unless obviously, and if you if you if you. For some reason, if you are sort of had a few issues, if it's because of mitigating circumstances, for instance, then you know tell the employer about that. Mm-hmm. Because some employers are very fle- flexible in their approach, you know, around you know if, if a student got a grade because of the situation, then they understand that they're humans. Um, but it's just about making sure they're aware of that. But really, the bad news is I think grades will become more and more important as the economy, you know, is is tightens up. To be honest.
0: Thank you. If, if anyone else has any more questions and our speakers are sticking around for a drink, I'm sure they wouldn't be averse to one or two of you um, asking them some more questions over a glass of wine or a glass of water. Um, right, it's time to close this part of the evening and thank our speakers for a fascinating, um, interesting, um, engaging set of talks. Um, there are a number of messages, take-home messages that we've got. I've made lots of notes, and one thing that, one theme that seemed to run through all of the talks was fun, which isn't something you often hear at LSE, um, but fun can help you get a job. Uh, hobbies make you a fully rounded and employable person, whether your hobby is windsurfing, thrash metal, humorous appreciation, I know that we've got a humorous appreciation society, perhaps one or two of you want to become the president of that. Um, Fun can lead to worthwhile projects and new opportunities. Fun can help you make more of your time at LSE and obviously help you relax here, um, make more of your time here. And fun can be your career, as Paulina has described, with SingStar and some of her other projects, and can even open doors to things like X Factor. Um, I'm also very excited that we seem to have a new LSE motto developing don't let the bankers kill the baby.
2: <laughs>
0: I'm going to get translated into Latin and um, I'm going to suggest that to our new director when he or she starts. Um, so, again, thank you very much to our speakers, and I think we have some tokens of our appreciation for them all and another round of applause. Before you all leave, um, please do join us for drinks outside. Um, I also want to explain what you do with those little cards that you've got, Um, the cards with the name of a city, a country or a famous landmark. Um, Firstly, you need to show your card to the catering staff outside for your free drink, very important, (laughs) but keep your card. The second thing is a very easy task to help you get to know one another um, and to win a prize. Your task is to find your partner. You have to match the landmark to the city or the country. So for example, your card might say Buckingham Palace. You need to find either London or England. When you find your partner, please take the opportunity to get to know them a little and present yourselves to the prize desk where you will be given a prize. If you're not sure what you need to do or you can't find your partner, talk to the student helpers and go to the prize desk anyway. Um,
1: Feedback
0: forms, I believe you've all got feedback forms. Please do fill them in and hand them to somebody who will be asking for them. Um, and finally, 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 just to tell you about one more date, the next date in 2012, 15th of February, day after Valentine's Day, no excuse not to come then, um, when Kurt Barling, the BBC London special correspondent, will be coming to talk to us. I hope you'll be able to join us again then, and details will go out on the, the website. So thank you all for coming very much indeed, and please join us for a drink outside York